Welcome to Care Transitions Today, a podcast centered on case management and transitions of care presented by the American Case Management Association and underwritten by the Pfizer Foundation. I'm your host, Deb McElroy, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the impact of COVID-19 on population health. My guests today are Mary Beth Pace and Sheila Johnson. Uh, Mary Beth is the Vice President of Care Management. Uh, Sheila serves as the Vice President of Population Health and Clinical Operations. I'm gonna have each of them share a little bit uh, about themselves. And Mary Beth, I'm gonna go to you first and and, uh, tell us a bit about your role. And if you would also just uh, some information about Trinity Health as well. Absolutely, sure. So thank you very much for having us on the podcast today. Um, By title, my title is Vice President of Care Management. What that really means is that I'm a nurse by background, and I work with all the case management and care management teams across the organization. I've been with Trinity for about 10 years, and Trinity um, spans 22 states now and has uh, what they tout as 94 acute care facilities, along with quite a few clinically integrated networks, um, as well as post-acute settings, um, home care, um, assisted living, and skilled skilled nursing facilities. The Trinity branch um, started in 2013, and when we merged Trinity Health with Catholic Healthcare East. So many people will remember those as two separate things, separate organizations, and now we're one big happy family. That's great. Well, thank you for that. And Sheila, I'm going to um, go to you next. Can you just give us a little bit of background on your role? Um, we're talking about population health today, and that's in your title. Thank you so much for having me. I'm a nurse by training as well, and I have the greatest role within the Trinity Health family in that I work with population health, and I'm putting that in air quotes for those of you that are maybe hearing that in my voice. And population health in my role is being able to care for the people that we serve and being able to ensure that we're mindful of their chronic care conditions and needs, also preventative care and well-being. And with that, I work most closely with our medical groups. And then, as Mary Beth mentioned, our clinically integrated networks that we have. And our clinically integrated networks is where we bring together our employed medical group providers and our independent affiliates in the community. And one part of my role is to ensure that the caregivers and care teams have data that they can use to identify patients that could use some care management and or we identify a lot of gaps in care where someone might not have had their cancer screenings or for children having their immunizations, et cetera. And it's all with the intent of having a healthy population. Okay, that's terrific, thanks. So. just sort of summarizing it, you're really looking to at populations, both of you that are more at risk for um, adverse healthcare outcomes, trying to keep, Sheila, you said that population healthy and and really a deep dive into the quality of care. So, mm-hmm. um, okay, yeah. so that's setting the stage for what we're talking about with population health. And I wanted to do that because today I wanna kick off just Talking to you, I'm interested to hear um, what you needed to, your organization needed to do, each of you needed to do in your roles um, that was different in, and that is different in this COVID-19 environment um, when you're discharging those those more at-risk patients um, out of the hospital or out of the acute care setting. So can you talk a little bit about you know, what the, what your strategies have been and how that's impacted what you do on discharge. 
So this is Mary Beth. From an acute care setting, what we have found is that many of those patients that used to be discharged to skilled facilities were not going to skilled facilities initially during this COVID crisis, right? So um, that has been a big change because that then gives um, Sheila and her team the, um, the need to actually ramp up even faster with those patients that are being discharged back to the community. So uh, that is one of the things that we have found. Uh, we've also found that um, our emergency rooms are not as busy. So we know that there's members of our community that might potentially be having issues um, that are not seeking the emergency room treatment. Sheila? Yeah, thank you for that, Mary Beth. I would add also that at the beginning of the COVID pandemic, we weren't quite sure what that even meant because it was such a novel virus to all of us. So within what Mary Beth was speaking of is that we had to also adjust for longer lengths of stay and for persons who contracted COVID were so much more sick than we thought they would be. So as the handover occurs and Mary Beth with our wonderful teams across the Trinity Health Nation, we've done a lot of work on the handover process and ensuring that as the patient at that time, they're inpatient as they're transitioning out, not just those that have been very ill, but anyone that had COVID transitioning back out and making sure that we're addressing social influencers, who their care team would be. There were just a myriad of things that we needed to think about a little bit differently. So I know you've, um, you've done, I, I've worked a little bit with your organization. I know you've done a lot in that arena anyway. You know, pre-COVID, you were worrying about how you do those handoffs and where they go through your care continuum. So, um, you know, were there things you had to ramp up? Were there some proactive things that you began to do as you saw how this was unfolding through the, for the, you know, in February, March, April? Yeah, if I might, I'd talk a little bit about the ambulatory perspective and what we did in that we knew that the CDC and Mayo Clinic had published criteria on vulnerable populations within our larger um, membership of patients that we serve and people we serve. And the criteria are such that they are a listing of conditions and social influencers that really make a person much more susceptible to a very severe illness if they were to contract COVID. The risk factors include everything from our usual suspects of chronic conditions, heart failure, diabetes, et cetera, to social influencers such as homelessness, and also then persons who are pregnant were also in this criteria. And what we did was we were able to use our data warehouse in order to be able to identify patients that met that criteria. Once we had all of that information, we were then able to turn our care managers loose on the population mm. and did outreach to each of the patients, starting with those at the highest risk. And we learned a lot from those encounters and those calls of, first of all, that the patients themselves, they really didn't know what COVID-19 is. They heard about it on the news or from a friend. So we did a lot of work to educate them on what COVID is and then started talking with them about the best way to be able to care for themselves, to not have to go to the emergency room or the hospital. Out of that as well, we learned that there were persons that either as we were more into the COVID pandemic, as we're reaching out, they might not have enough food. They might be worried about how they were even going to pay their rent. It's all of the things that we can imagine. And one of the biggest things that we came across was social isolation from being socially isolated and the impact that that was having on persons' ability to 
not almost go out of their mind with craziness because of not having anyone around them. So I'm going to just follow up with a question on that because so you have primarily ambulatory care case managers reaching out. Obviously, you've had um, resources that you've historically used to plug those folks in, but these are a lot of social issues and a lot of issues that, you know, maybe a family who economically was stable before is less stable because of the environment. I, did you, did, were they able to successfully help these folks navigate? Is it, it kind of depends on the situation I'm presuming, but, um, you know, I, I guess I, there's a question in there about things that you've done in the past. Did did you were you able to leverage that at this point? Yes, we are very fortunate at Trinity Health that we have a call it a division that's known as community health and well-being, and we have community health workers and social workers in each of our health organizations across the Trinity Health Nation. And the community health workers, they are very key to being in the community and helping serve our patients where they live. Additionally, we have what's called a social care hub, and we have resources that we can pull upon through Aunt Bertha. Many people have heard of that. Also, 211, we have those resources. And what we did find is that the community resources were very oversaturated with need and found that we had to get creative and look for other ways to help meet our patients' needs. And I'm imagining, Mary Beth, if you'd like to comment as well from what you were seeing in the hospital environment with patient needs as well, if, if that's all right to segue over to Yeah, Matthew. absolutely. That was going to be my next question. Okay, that's great. great. So the acute care environment was saturated in two different ways, right? We did have those very ill patients that um, Sheila talked about in our ICUs and uh, receiving COVID. But we also, in many of our um, regions, ended up with an influx of skilled facilities and assisted living facilities, sending their patients into the emergency department and then not willing to take them back until they got COVID negative tests from them. So it was a different um, feel in the, in the acute care environments because these people were out of their home, what they considered their home, but we had no ability to get them back to what we considered their home. So the, the challenge there happened to be that there were a couple of house bills, 1135, and a couple of different waivers that we tried to implement in the acute care environment in order to create a safe environment for those patients because we knew they wouldn't be able to get back to their own home. Um, so that's pretty much outside of the realm of our population health care managers, but that was happening in quite a few of our organizations. I wouldn't, probably about 30% of our organizations right off the bat. So we did a couple of different strategies around that part of it, but that's outside of pop health. So I'll uh, stop there. I do have statistics though. Uh, one of the physicians gave us statistics. Um, Sheila, you'll remember this. Um, in the month of April and May, one site did 35,676 outreaches. That is amazing. So um, I, I, I just, it, it actually gives me goosebumps when I think about that. Think about these patients, or I'm sorry, our population, so they're not in the hospital, so they're not patients, but think about these people at their home really worried about whether or not they should go to their doctor's office, um, create a video conference call with them. Do they have the ability to do that, right? And then all of a sudden, a care manager calls you and says, we just need to figure out how you doing, right? How are you doing? What can we do for you to keep you healthy, happy, and safe where you are? That's amazing. So when you think about that, and again, I think so many organizations have been on this journey. We've been talking about population health and how to manage those populations for a long time. But when you look forward 
you know, I, I mean, one site, 37,000, I think you just said it's mind blowing. So what changes in the future? Do you think, um, what can you take from this? I mean, hopefully we're not going to have cause to have, you know, this ramped up need, but you know, is there anything you take forward with you as you think about what we're going to do in three years, um, hopefully post-COVID? So I think we take it all forward with us, right? So the the ability to be as nimble as these teams have been is a huge benefit to them. Um, but they couldn't have done it without the support of our IT infrastructure and things like that in terms of the reports that Sheila talked about and the the outreach and things like that. But the other part of that is a couple years ago, we really did want our acute care environments to be just that emergent in ICU, right? I think we've seen that now. I think we've seen that we need to keep our ICUs, but um, everything else can be done and is being done in the community. And that's where these, uh, these beneficiaries and our, our members um, uh, together health is our, our concept, right? So our members, um, we need to meet them where they are. And if that's where they are is in the community, that's where they need to stay. Sheila? Yeah, I would add a little bit to that. And thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, when I think specifically about the members and ranging from babies all the way up to our very um, geriatric population, that we did some very interesting things. And first off, within our medical group, we implemented virtual visits. And so we have video visits that have been happening between the doctors and our APRNs and the members. We took that software, that uh, telehealth video software, and we've implemented it with some of our ambulatory care managers not all of our health ministries organizations have it yet, but I know of two in particular that have launched it. And we have several others that are in mid-launch for it. And what we found is that we were so able to see into the patient's homes because oftentimes we only can hear and try to imagine what it looks like in their homes when we're on the phone having the, and we've used a secure platform, and we're able to ask the patient even to put the camera part of their either laptop, iPad, whatever device they have, and show us around the house a little bit. And we've been able to even see more into their home and what they might need. It's also been a game changer with medications because we can ask them to show their medication bottles to us through the lens, and it really makes a big difference. And the member feels less isolated when they have the face of a care manager actually coming into their home. So that's been a game changer for us, and we don't see that stopping into the future. Additionally, we've learned more about ourselves and our own abilities to really make a difference within the community, very specific to social influencers and being able to meet those needs of people who oftentimes worry, especially now, am I going to be able to afford my medication or am I going to be able to afford food? You can imagine all of the things that come with that. So as Mary Beth said, yes, we're taking all of these things into the future. And I think a big opportunity, as well as a challenge, is not to slip back into our old habits and go back to the way it was. It's a great yeah, point. I, I really like that. I think that it's, you know, difficult times really do birth some, some great new opportunities. And I'm just going to do a couple of follow-ups for each of you, but um, you talked about challenges and I heard, I'm hearing from both of you, certainly resource, resources, community resources were challenged. Um, so I'm just, um, Sheila, gonna follow up on, on one piece, medic, medication reconciliation 
wherever you are on the care continuum has always been such a such a challenge. So I love the example that that you gave. It was patient compliance at all like more of a challenge? Um, I, you know, Mary Beth, you mentioned them not coming in. You know, not coming into the emergency room, not coming into their physician. So do you? you know, were you seeing any of that? Certainly outreach made a difference, but so I, I would ask um, that question. And then just, you know, when you think about resource challenges too, were you able to leverage any, um, you know, public health has been a huge player in this space, you know, was there any partnership? So I'll go to the, the compliance piece first, Sheila, with you, and then have Mary Beth follow up on the, the resource and partnerships. Yeah, um, as far as per uh, our members adhering to either their medication regime or whatnot, we didn't find that so much as a challenge at first. What we found more and more in through the month of May, so thinking like March through May, is that many of our members put off getting testing done or closing their gaps in care. So we could say they weren't adherent or compliant to their care needs in that respect. So preventive care. We also found that our patients who perhaps were in mid-flight for getting specialty care because of the disruption of COVID that didn't always happen in a timely manner. Yeah, makes sense. We stayed open though, and that was a misconception. There was a, a conception in the market that Trinity is closed. No, we stayed open. Patients didn't want to come in though always. So since May, we've had very concerted efforts of getting people to come back in, knowing that, yes, we do need you to be in and then picking up the treatments again if they were at all interrupted. The other piece I would have, and I know you're gonna ask Mary Beth, but I'll comment on the ambulatory environment and the care manager's role as well. They were very actively engaged following persons under investigation for COVID. So the PUIs, and that was a shift from a lot of their traditional work where they had focused more on the high risk or rising risk. Now they were asked to focus on all risk when they were working with our PYs. And also with that, uh, a resource constraint, not even just people, but in Mary Beth will comment more as well, is not having enough nurses to care for patients in the hospital and a lot of shifting around and then from the ambulatory setting, a call to be able to take primary care doctors, pulmonologists, critical care doctors that would traditionally not be critical care and redeploying them into the hospital as well. And I know our focus is a lot on care management and transitions of care. Mary Beth and I though, we talk also about how we coordinate care in general for all the people we serve. So hope that helped. It did, thanks. And Sheila, um, another part is the furry clinics, right? Yeah. Yes. So. so can you talk a little bit about that? Yep, F-U-R-I. They're either called furry or fury clinics, and it's fever, upper respiratory illness. And if you know, when COVID erupted, it was also still flu season, cold and flus. And so we purposely set up in the ambulatory environment, especially within our medical groups, the ability to have a clinic where you would go if you had fever up or your respiratory illness. And then we had what we call, and we still have the COVID free zones. So if you aren't ill because we had access to a lot of research and what were people saying, so public opinion research as well, and found that a lot of persons in the United States, probably in the world, but in the US, were very frightened of contracting COVID by going to a healthcare facility. And then also following along with CDC recommendations of having those 
is that are either fury or COVID free. Good. Thank you. And that was a, a great point. Um, Mary Beth, you want to just comment too on just leveraging some of those partners or how that? Yep. So I'm going to start with lack of resources, right? We talked about lack of resources. Um, at the same time that the COVID crisis started, um, we were in the process, Trinity was in the process of building their own internal nursing um, staffing model. And we call that first choice. Now that has spread to not only nurses, but also respiratory therapists, physical therapists, um, occupational therapists, physicians now. Um, so as a call for critical staffing levels would, would arise in the, in the hospitals, um, they would reach out to the first choice team and the first choice team would work to mobilize resources for them. Um, some of the system office nurses even went back to the front lines and, and worked. Um, we had one, Kyle McDaniel, I think you guys know Kyle, um, that was redeployed to um, the whole month of April uh, for staffing pr uh, purposefully in the areas that they needed the help. Many of our CDI nurses were also redeployed back to nursing units. So that was where we found many of the nurses that would normally, and a couple of our patient navigators for our one for one program were actually redeployed as well. So that's kind of the resource piece of an acute care environment. I know everybody has heard all about the PPE issues, right? We had a huge supply chain strategy around personal protective equipment and where that needed to be and how it needed to be there. And, and there were very, very few glitches in places that really uh, needed that PPE, including our skilled facilities and our home health care agencies. Because initially, we wanted to get patients discharged from the emergency department home instead of admitting them if they weren't sick enough. But we also wanted to protect them or our, um, our colleagues that were going into that home to make sure they were okay. So that was a lot of what was going on in terms of resources very early on. So Mary Beth, you're, you're talking about, you know, um, really staffing models that, that needed to be developed, you know, born out of necessity. And um, Sheila, you talked about your ambulatory uh, case managers really performing functions that weren't traditionally part of their role. So here we are uh, today, we're at the end of August, we're going into to the fall. So, you know, as you organize staff, um, what, I, I guess, my, it, similar to a previous question I asked, like, what do you take forward? Are you hardwiring some of those, you know, I think Mary Beth called it first choice, correct? Um, do you, is that part of uh, your hardwired um, organization and uh, our folks returning to their previous roles or what does that look like? And I'll let both of you respond to that because I think there's a lot of interest in what this looks like going forward. Um, from the ambulatory perspective, a day in the life right now looks something like this. We know that we still have, depending which state you're in, we have COVID spikes going on. And so we still worry about COVID our big worry right now or concern is looking into influenza season coming. And so we have a large push right now on immunizing our population for influenza. We also are looking at what the testing will look like. So much of COVID mirrors influenza and how many swabs are we going to have? I mean, you can just imagine all of those things honing even then more in on the role of the ambulatory care manager. In some of our health organizations, we still have persons under investigation that care managers are continuing to focus on. We did have, uh, it's been in the public arena, we've had a furlough of staff at one point as well. So we've been bringing our colleagues back and getting them reacclimated into what this work looks like as we move forward. We also know that in the ambulatory arena, 
We spend a lot of time educating our populations on COVID, what to watch out for, et cetera. That education continues and then layering on now as we go into flu season. So we don't see our role of the ambulatory care manager only being able to focus on high risk. We see that role needing to continue. And if anything, we want to get even better at our video visit techniques because we can't always reach our patients via the phone. We've had to flex to after hours because traditionally we've done a lot of this work during the day. But we know many people right now, if they have small children, they're trying to either homeschool or figure out what they need to do. And so we've had to be more nimble in looking at things differently from the when we offer our services, how we offer our services, and continuing to do our best to keep people healthy. We also know there has been pent-up demand. And as Mary Beth mentioned, we have had people that have not necessarily gone to the hospital or to the doctor's office when they were having, you can name it. So making sure we get caught up on all of our pent up demand and planning for future demand as well. That's great. Mary Beth, would you add anything to that as you're thinking about? So you were, you were talking about the first choice strategy, right? So first choice is our staffing strategy for acute care. And we're gonna move that out. Um, one of our leaders always, um, uh, had this vision anyways. So uh, this has just been born out of necessity for all of our acute care. And then we have to, we also um, right now are staffing for our skilled facilities because the skilled facilities, um, there was quite a few uh, um, technicians, um, home, uh, aides that uh, we, we've all been struggling with our own PUIs, right? And our own positive our own colleagues that are positive. So there's been um, quite a lot of change in that, that strategy too, of what we do with those people when they are under investigation or they are um, positive and when do you bring them back? So all of that will become ingrained in our strategy going forward. Um, quite a lot of uh, teleworking for the, for the system teams is uh, um, underway as well. So a lot of that happens uh, at the same time. So a lot of that teleworking is uh, happening too. So all in all, I think we've come together better, but apart. Yeah, it's, you know, just challenging challenging times. Um, so it, it just um, sort of going back to this idea of population health and the populations you were managing before, is there any specific population that rose up to say this, you know, and this may be somewhat anecdotal as we're still waiting for data to come in, but um, out of your uh, system, did you see any specific population that you felt was at higher risk than others? So, Sheila, you talked about the usual suspects. There's heart failure and diabetes and, you know, just any anything that you've noted. Um, I'd say that I can't specifically say like X percent of people with a condition rose to having the most need because we took more of a proactive approach in that vulnerable population outreach. And I love that we call them vulnerable population because that's really our VPs, so very important people. And we were able through that using the, um, the CDC and the Mayo criteria, it did bubble up to the top, those that are, were at the highest risk. And those highest risk are ones that have more of the chronic conditions plus age 60 and over, plus they've had homelessness. So each of those criteria gets you points. 
So our proactive outreach really did allow us to reach out to that highest, most vulnerable VPs that are out there. And then there's, it's broken into four tiers. So we went after the high risk and then the medium risk, and then there's low risk and no risk. So that medium and high risk segment of our entire population are really the ones that we've touched. And so I believe we've had a really good way of managing our people that could have had a severe illness if they had contracted COVID. I think where we weren't as active, but we're getting back into it, is more of if you have a chronic condition, and you mentioned this earlier, adherence to treatment. So for example, one of our populations is our children, and some of them have fallen behind on their childhood immunizations. Now you can say that's not a chronic condition, but untreated and not getting their immunizations, that's not good either. So we've done a lot of marketing campaigns. We put, uh, purposely partner with our marketing and communications teams to have multiple modalities to reach out to that population. And we also wanna ensure that adults who haven't had their screening, that they come in for that. So I'd say to summarize a bit that we did really worry about our most high risk and moderate risk for severe illness from COVID. And those are the ones we really intensely followed. Also our PUIs. And then now we're back on track with more of the preventive health strategy and getting people in for their care. That sounds and great. From, from that perspective, I think, Sheila, uh, the scary thing is we don't know what we don't know, right? So all of those people we know should have come to the emergency department. We really don't know where they were or where they are and what the sequela is going to be that they end up with a year from now, six months from now. So you think about those acute MIs that actually survived but never went to the hospital and what kind of cardiac conditions will they end up with and will this be a new onset of heart failure that is a different heart failure because of muscle um, necrosis, right? So when you think of it in those terms, uh, while we're preparing um, to be all to all, we don't know how to prepare for those that um, did not seek treatment yet. We have some ideas, right, about how to do it and reach out, outreach is Betty is the best. But when you don't have those lab results or you don't have a body that you are looking at um, through video, what are we gonna end up with? And that I think is probably one of the biggest challenges for us at this point in time is um, what does the future hold for uh, those patients that did not seek treatment when they should have. Yeah, I, I mean, I've heard you identify through our, our discussion today some challenges, but I think that that's a, a great point. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a challenge that has a question mark associated with it that is going to take some strategy, I would think, in terms of teams and resources and, and all of that. Um, you know, I, I've been impressed on some of the wins. I, I mean, just the volume of outreach and um, some of the quick deployment uh, of your resources. Um, can you comment on anything else that bubbled up, do you think, as a win um, that we haven't touched on? Um, yeah, I could, I could identify a couple, and one of them in particular is working from home. And for when the pandemic started, anyone that had more or less an office job and including our care managers in the ambulatory environment, many of us were asked to now work from home. Now that's presented its own interesting challenges. However, it's also presented some good opportunities to work more in a virtual world with the right kind of technology platforms to assist us. And the other piece I would say that I'm really proud of working at Trinity as well is how well our human resources 
functional area, HR has taken such good care of all of us and that they've been very mindful of the stress that especially those that have worked in the hospital on the front line have experienced with the patients that have been so sick with COVID. And I don't like to use PTSD, those initials too much, but there has been a lot of traumatic events and our human resources team is very mindful of well as well of our mental health and how much strain just all of this together has had. And I think they've done a fabulous job in supporting all of us while our worlds have been truly turned upside down. Yeah. Great. I think one of the other wins we have is actually, um, I talked about it earlier, that we're stronger together, far apart, right? We've um, we've built some relationships with outside organizations as well that we had, we had handshake relationships, right? But now we're on um, video, video chats with them and we see each other and we can um, build that relationship. And we all keep saying, you know, when this is all over, we're going to go eat lunch together and <laughs> things like that. Right. Um, things that you didn't have the time to do before because you had your head down and you were you were getting your work done. Right. So um, uh, external skilled facilities, skilled care facilities, external home health care agencies. While we have our own, we don't have them in every state that we have hospitals in. So we've had to reach beyond them, right? So that that those relationships are the ones that I'm uh, so thankful for uh, going forward. And I and you know we're making a conscious effort to make sure that as they've been good to us, that we're also good to them. And um, Sheila couldn't have said it better about our human resources department. And I would kick in our executive leadership team too. Mm -hmm. They've been, um, they've been very supportive of um, any strategy that we could try. Uh, they've gone, you know, kind of given us the, the okay, try it um, strategy. And it's, it's been uh, very, very nice that uh, we can just do that because the, the formal structure of an organization, our size um, can sometimes take strategies, you know, six, eight months to, to get implemented. And boy, that hasn't been, that hasn't been uh, <laughs> true at all during this, this pandemic. So that's been uh, really very refreshing. Yeah. Born out of necessity. Um, uh, just, you were talking about the external relationships, which I would think have been so critical. Um, Certainly, I think Trinity has a lot of um, infrastructure to support uh, to support your members. But uh, has there has there been anybody as you're thinking about some of the social issues that um, Sheila brought up earlier, the homelessness, the you know food safety, those kinds of things? Any any partner in the community that you had not historically. Um, sought to, to partner with that you might now, food pantries, public health departments, that kind of thing? Oh, we've always partnered with them. So I can't think off the top of my head, anybody that rises to, oh, we never knew about them. I can't really think of anybody. Can you, Mary Beth? Um, the only ones I could think of from an acute care perspective are those assisted living facilities. Um, while some of them are, are, are our own owned assisted living facilities, I think assisted living is a, is a new um, foray for us because to us, assisted living is their home where they're going back to. Yes, they purchase additional services, but that's their home. And the assisted living facilities, the, the, and you mentioned public health earlier, and I, I kind of skated over it, but the public health departments across the organizations, across the states, um, were really getting missed messages and mixed messages from their own leadership as to what they should be doing for um, patients um, that don't live in a home, four walls home environment, even though to me, assisted living is their home. So there were a couple of them, I talked about it in Pennsylvania and in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, where 
um, public health showed up and just kind of put these people on a bus and brought them to our emergency department. So I think we've built better relationships with them than we've ever had to in the past. So out of, out of a cri- don't ever let a crisis go to waste, right? Mm-hmm. We, um, that is the one place that um, acute care has um, become very aware of and very um, uh, rapidly needing to build those relationships to make sure that we've got a strategy. So now our strategy is a COVID, what we call a COVID drop team. So instead of the public health department going to the assisted living facility and putting all those people in a van and bringing them to the hospital, the hospital actually deploys testers to the assisted living environment. All of the assisted living environments, those poor people, oh, they are, they're not allowed to get visitors anyways. And so they are all isolated themselves in their own apartments. And so we've got these drop teams, these testers that go in and do uh, the testing right there at that assisted living instead of all of them coming to the emergency department. I think that's the big difference. Um, And it's a game changer. And since I have the floor, um, CMS um, and our president have changed the testing requirements for skilled nursing facilities and other sites. And this is just a new thing that came out yesterday or the day before. Today's Wednesday, probably Monday. And so when you think about that change in those testing requirements, it could affect us again negatively. Um, So we're trying to wrap our heads around that and, and make sure that we react to that. Okay, good. I mean, I think those are important points and part of the reality of the environment that you're navigating. Um, I think as we're wrapping up, I would just ask each of you, um, you know, personally, is there anything that you, you know, that you're taking away from this and just anything else that we haven't talked about today? You know, population health is something we've looked at and navigate it for many years here, but this is where it's been put to the test, right? Um, in in a unique unique way. So, just sort of some final thoughts, comments on um, your own navigation of this of the crisis, as well as anything we didn't touch on. So, I think I'll start because I don't know that Sheila would toot her own horn, but Sheila has been telling our organization, how great those population health strategies are. And I believe that when the rubber hit the road, it was true everywhere, right? So um, she's right. Uh, They have great um, processes and great teams. And with some help from the system office in terms of reports and reach outreach and the ability to outreach to not only their at risk, but their next level level down. Um, I think they've proved to all of our team, to all of our hospitals and to all of our CEOs across the organization. And that's 94 CEOs um, that they actually uh, are um, here. They're, they're a strategy. They're a force to be reckoned with, I guess is the way I would say it (laughs) because they certainly they take their um, their responsibility um, very seriously, and they have helped save and avoid so many illnesses. Um, so I wanted to start with that. Um, when you think about that alone, and I told you about how many outreach one just one site had, just one little pocket in Michigan had. Um, uh, they when the rubber hit the road, they were ready. That's wonderful. Uh, Thank you for those comments. Sheila, do you want to follow up on that? Yeah, thank you so much, Mary Beth. That's very kind of you. I would say that as a nurse, first of all, that as much as I would never wish a pandemic on anyone, uh, this pandemic has really been made for nurses. And it's been made for us to be able to do what we really have always wanted to do and it's take care of a population and to be able to work with people to ensure they stay healthy and when you do have chronic conditions 
to be able to manage those conditions so that when you do go to the emergency department or to the hospital, you truly need to be there. And it isn't because you didn't know what to do. And that paradigm shift of really being able to meet people where they live, whether it be under a bridge, and we do have people that are our members that live under bridges, or if you live in, as Mary Beth pointed out, an assisted living facility or your own home, wherever you are, we are ready to take care of the population and it fits so well with our mission of being able to serve and especially the underserved. So I just think that as much as the COVID-19 pandemic is heartbreaking, it's also been a push for us to really look at things differently, ensure we are meeting the needs of those we serve. And I think of it kind of as the great disruptor that has disrupted everyone, not all for the bad either. Our social workers, our respiratory therapists, our physicians, we, we just, in I think, such a unique way through these last few months have understood the interprofessional um, nature of our, of our work, right? And, and we've always known that, but it certainly has been highlighted. I uh, want to thank both of you, Sheila and Mary Beth, for being with us today. This was a great opportunity for me to hear, you know, uh, you know how you've navigated. And I just appreciate uh, so sincerely you taking the time out of your busy work to share some of your insights with us. Um, also want to thank our audience for tuning in. And if there are any questions or comments regarding today's episode, um, or if anyone out there would like to submit a topic uh, to um, suggest a, another podcast, please visit acmaweb.org. That's acmaweb.org. Or send us an email at podcast at acmaweb.org. <laughs>